from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis. It's Thursday, February 27th. Today, what young voters in South Carolina want, how smart doorbells have changed our neighborhoods, and looking back at Stop and Frisk. I am a millennial and have been fascinated by the diversity of the millennial experience for probably 10 years. According to Pew Research, millennials range from people born in 1981 to 1996. And those are incredibly broad experiences, depending on where you're from and your various identities and how you view the world. I'm Eugene Scott. I'm a political reporter for The Fix. The Harvard Institute of Politics for years has polled, hosted focus groups, done other type of research projects focused on young voters. And I've been following them for years. Come on, do me a favor. If you could just like start in the middle, because we have a few too many chairs and we'll kind of fan out. So I saw that they would be in South Carolina ahead of the primary talking to a diverse group of young voters. And so I went down there to sit in on the focus group. You guys are the most patient people I've ever met. Thank you. What was it like when you were on the ground meeting with young voters in South Carolina? It was a great experience because I wasn't just talking to college students. There were other millennials in this focus group brought together by the Harvard Public Opinion Project. There were single parents. There were married people. There were college students, of course. There was representation from a group I'm very interested in, which is millennials who did not pursue education beyond high school. Because I think a lot of times in the mainstream media, we use millennial and college student interchangeably as if every young person goes to college. And we know that's not true. It also sounds like this group of millennials was also extremely diverse. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, across this fairly broad landscape of millennial experiences, what were some of the key issues that they wanted to see addressed in the election cycle? It was diverse. I mean, people of color and people of color who also were not black, white people, men, women. There were quite a few issues they were very concerned about. It's Charleston, South Carolina, one of the most historical places uh, in our country related to the slave trade. And there was conversation about the lasting legacy of racial tension that continues to exist in this country and the role that President Trump has played in stoking it. What I would say would probably be like the racial tension with uh, our president, the way he kind (coughs) of talks about like immigration and (coughs) Mexico and that kind of thing, the border. There was a lot of interest in housing affordability and low wages and a desire to see an increase in incomes, student loan debt crises. A lot of the issues that you would see in Any major city in the country, Charleston, which is one of the more cosmopolitan cities in the South, is experiencing its own microcosm of all of those issues. If you're from Charleston, you cannot afford to live here. It was fascinating to hear it from those young people's perspectives. Was there anything that stood out to you right off the bat in terms of the things that came up in your conversations? One of the things that 
I was most taken aback by was the fact that when the facilitator asked, Who feels like you're struggling? Struggling to like, you know, keep your head above water, keep your hands up for a second, all right? Everybody raised their hands because quite a few members of the group were college-educated professionals. And so I, I was surprised to see and to hear that everyone would think that they were struggling. And it was just a reminder of an issue that many on the left bring up time and time again, that despite having a full-time job in this country, there are many people who are, by most definitions, gainfully employed and still struggling financially. So much of the conversation about economic anxiety during the 2016 election focused on white working class voters. There wasn't a lot of conversation about how people of color and even middle class Americans, regardless of their race, are anxious about where the economy is. And it was really helpful to be on the ground hearing some of these voters explain why. How does this sort of shape up in comparison with what you saw from young people in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada? I think we are seeing in all of these states, all of the young people say they want something new. So most young people in these states backed Bernie Sanders. But even those who are more moderate lean towards Pete Buttigieg. And I think what that communicated was they want either a new ideology to be dominant on the left and perhaps government as a whole, or if they are a little more comfortable with the status quo, they want a new approach to it with some new ideas from someone outside of Washington. And so what young voters are communicating, I believe, across the board is what has happened or has been happening is not what they want to keep happening. As a fellow seasoned millennial. <laughs> not as seasoned as me, though. Not quite as yes. seasoned. You're, yes, you're more seasoned than yes. me. I want to know how powerful this voting block is and whether or not millennials are exercising that right to vote. That's a great question. Well, there's a lot of interest, I think, in millennials in this election for a few reasons. One, it's the first time a millennial has been a leading candidate. Pete Buttigieg is a millennial. There's been a lot of interest in what an America led by a millennial could look like. And that's because despite millennials not having deep history of high voter turnout, that changed in 2016. The 2016 election is where millennials really showed their voting power. About 46% of eligible millennial voters showed up. And those numbers increased for the 2018 midterms as well. And so there's just some expectation that they will even go up in the 2020 election, in part because millennials have surpassed baby boomers as the largest voting bloc. Now, Nobody really votes like baby boomers. They're like 70-something percent. And even though the percentage of millennials voting in 2016 increased from 2012 and was actually the only age group to actually increase, no one thinks they're going to jump, you know, 30 points and beat baby boomers. But it could be closer to 50 percent than ever before, in part because the presumptive front runner right now, and it may feel a bit premature to say that, but based on the states and contests we've seen right now, the presumptive nominee, Bernie Sanders, is winning and leading with young voters. And so I think millennials are showing their power. 
Earlier, you mentioned that millennials have yet to reach the 50 percent threshold in terms of voter turnout. If Bernie Sanders doesn't win the nomination, will millennials rally behind whoever the nominee is? That is the big question right now. Will Sanders supporters, including young voters, get behind a nominee whose ideology and vision for America is not as progressive as theirs. We know that Sanders has been very vocal saying that if he does not win the nomination, he wants his supporters to support the nominee the same way he will. And we saw in 2016 he did the same thing, and most Sanders voters in 2016 did support Hillary Clinton, but not all. And it is believed that some who did not may have influenced the outcome of the election, certainly not single-handedly, but in part. And so I think right now what will need to happen for a nominee other than Sanders to get the support of Sanders' young voters is to at least move a bit left on their economic issues while maintaining their moderate worldview to keep the people who brought them there. But for young voters to, I believe, turn out in mass in the ways that will be needed to win the election, there's going to have to be a candidate that is hearing their concerns and addressing them directly with policy issues. What would be your main takeaway from talking to young voters across the country in however many states you visited so far? It's just fascinating to be on the ground and hear the perspectives of people who all who don't always get the opportunity to go on air and share their stories. We're in the storytelling business and it's it's I it will never get old to me connecting with real Americans and hearing you know, one young man talk about his anxieties about his brother going to war. My brother is a pilot in the Navy, and when the U.S. killed Soleimani, uh, over a thousand troops within his own base were immediately deployed. Yeah. So, me with talking with my parents, we do worry, like, he might be next to uh, right. go up. And a young mom talking about having to choose between her daughter eating and her eating. Another young woman expressing her anxiety about reproductive health and access to abortion. Um, My mom worked for Planned Parenthood in San Francisco for six years, lobbied on the Hill for them. Mm -hmm. I've always been a very strong advocate for Planned Parenthood and reproductive justice. And the fact that in the past year, so many states have either past bills that are banning Mm -hmm. um, abortions at certain weeks or Mm -hmm. just completely, or that they're being brought to the floor, including in South Carolina. Um, I cannot express my disgust and just disappointment in the politics that's surrounding that culture. Being on the ground talking to young people is the best way to see how policy impacts the individuals affected by it. And when you're talking to real people out in the field, it's no longer just theory. It's it's real. It's the real world. Eugene Scott covers identity politics for the Post blog, The Fix.
smart doorbell is just a doorbell with a camera in it and a chip that allows it to connect to the internet. And from that little tiny change, you have created this new world where people can see what's happening on their porch and their doorstep and down their street pretty much any time they want. My name is Drew Harwell. I cover artificial intelligence and algorithms for The Post. The business was created out of mainly people kind of wanting to know, okay, is my Amazon delivery on my doorstep? Is somebody going to take it? Am I worried about porch pirates? You know, it was this security measure for people who were anxious about neighborhood safety. But now it's taken on a life of its own, right? Because like anytime you have a camera and an internet connection, people are going to watch. They're going to tune in whenever they want, even when packages aren't coming. And they're going to say, who can I see walking down my street right now? What are the suspicious, you know, bumps in the night that are happening that I just gotta check out. That reminds me of one of the people you interviewed, Margaret Kudia, who got a ring doorbell and initially got it to kind of investigate porch pirates and secure her own home. But it sounds like she also got into a little bit more than that. Yeah, she was like a lot of the people I talked to who just felt like, hey, this is an amazing tool. Like, I can see so much, you know. And she hated when people would ring the doorbell because she had five dogs and they would all just bark and go crazy. So for her, it was like a peace of mind thing. And she felt like, okay, this is a solution to every annoyance I've ever had. And so what she didn't realize is that once this camera was on, you know, every time its motion detection system would be triggered, she would be getting alerts. And those alerts were really annoying in their own way. And there were, you know, other instances where she had an adult daughter that was walking to check in on her dogs. And she heard her daughter talking about how controlling she was on her way to pick up a beer out of the fridge. (laughs) And, you know, she like, she saw the video later. She was not expecting to be creeping on her daughter like that. But she couldn't help but laugh at the fact that she had this viewpoint into her daughter's life, into what her daughter thought about her that she never would have imagined she could see. So, People like Margaret obviously started out getting Ring and Nest to better protect themselves, but it also sounds like people are getting more and more preoccupied with what's going on beyond their doorstep. Yeah, and it's just the power that these tools give, right? Like, there are some people who just use it for the security, but if you can turn it on at any time and if you're getting these notifications on your phone, like, how are you going to say, no, I don't want to check it out? These cameras prey on a lot of interesting anxieties that we have. One is that, you know, we just fear of the unknown. What are the mysteries happening in our neighborhood? Are there ways I could secure my fortress using just a little camera that I'm okay with? But it also preys in this almost like voyeuristic curiosity that we have, right? Where it's, you know, can I see what the neighbors are doing? Like, can I tell? Like, is my mailman doing something wrong again? Is the delivery person wrong? It's tapping into all of these sometimes unhealthy desires we have in our mind to just sort of watch silently from the shadows. And, you know, the cameras let us do that. They give us that power without really um, making us have to deal with the consequences. It also sounds like it plays into some of our fears. You mentioned somebody else in your story that was labeled a person to watch when in reality it used to be his old house and he was just kind of reminiscing. On the one side, you know, It's just a creepy human 
impulse to want to know what's going on around you. But I'm also wondering, is it a bigger problem than people spying on their neighbors? Yeah. So I feel like there are a couple factors at play here. The the fact is, like, we know our neighbors less, right? We hang out on our porch less. We, we interact with our community less. But we have more cameras. We have more ability to know what's going on. So we're both less aware of who the people are in our neighborhood, but we're also, like, more heightened around the possible bad things that could happen. We have this, like, newfound technical vigilance that we're given by all of these, you know, beeping notifications and cameras and sensors and microphones that we have all around us. So we're just sort of primed for something bad to go on. And, you know, we see this with Nextdoor, right? We see this with these, like, community Facebook groups where people are just on edge. Like, so many of these things that people were responding to were totally harmless events, occurrences that they never would have even known had happened. And yet they knew now because they had this camera. So this was stuff like, you know, kids would be walking down the sidewalk, like beating up trees with sticks, or they, you know, they would be like roaming the neighborhood, seemingly suspicious, but it was really just like kids going to school. And you do, you've seen this like with Ring's social network called Neighbors, where people can post whatever video they want. And you'll see these people posting videos of kids who look totally harmless. There's nothing suspicious to them. And the caption of the video will be like, who are these kids? Like, what are they doing? What's wrong? And so, you know, there's all of the problems we've had with traditional neighborhood watches, right? Like this fear of the other, who doesn't belong. Those are playing out with Ring. And you're seeing that around the kinds of classic neighborhood biases, right? Where a lot of these, you know, community Facebook groups, a lot of the people that they end up posting video of tend to not look like them. So this ends up being young black kids a lot of times. This ends up being people who they feel like don't belong in their neighborhood. So it's exacerbating all of these problems and it's just throwing a camera in the middle and it's it's really, you know, becoming something people are worried about. It seems like this technology is making people more paranoid and anxious. Is it doing more of that than actually keeping them safe? So that's a good question, right? Like, I think it's doing a little bit of both. And some people have said they can't imagine living without the camera. And there have been some success stories where people could catch somebody in the act of stealing a package. Somebody was really creepy following into their door, and they had footage of that. And they feel like, why wouldn't I have a camera? Like, this is an easy way to protect myself. And yet, it can also, at the same time, amp up things that aren't crimes. I don't think it's inventing these feelings in people. I think it's heightening them and making people more reactive to things they never would have had to deal with before. What made you want to look into this story? So I'm super interested in Ring and Nest and just the fact that cameras are so cheap now that we're throwing them into our lives in all of these unprecedented ways. Ring has been really aggressively courting police agencies across the country in terms of police officers have this new kind of data access request where they can sort of draw a box around some neighborhood and say, you know, ask all of the homeowners in that box. Can you share video with us? Can you share footage? We're investigating a crime. So I think there are some interesting surveillance issues around that. But the big thing about Ring recently for people is that there have been some real nightmare stories of hackers, cyber attacks, people breaking into these cameras to spy on their kids or make loud noises or ask for Bitcoin payoffs or whatever. And so, you know, my 
kind of interest in talking to people was like, are you nervous about these things? Like, are these instances making you rethink how quickly you've jumped into this new sort of surveillance infrastructure? So I did hear that. But the thing that really jumped out at me was how much people were okay with that potential danger because they just loved the amount of new insight, new viewpoints they got on all of their neighbors. They loved being able to turn on the camera to talk to their pets, to see their kids, to see their house guests, to see their house cleaners and the pool guy and the people sort of coming into their home. They just felt like empowered because they had this camera and microphone that they maybe wouldn't have had five years ago. And they could check it at work. They could check it on the drive home, right? So these people felt like supercharged by this ability. And they oftentimes weren't telling the people who they were watching that they were recording them doing so. Drew Harwell reports on AI and algorithms for The Post. Ring is owned by Amazon, whose founder, Jeff Bezos, also owns The Post. One more thing. Presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg, who's been getting a lot of attention with his advertising, is going to be on the ballot for the first time this coming Tuesday for many of the Super Tuesday races across the country in many states that have a very diverse Democratic electorate. And that has put a lot of attention on the stop and frisk program that was very controversial when he was mayor of New York. We want our police to both protect us, protect our civil rights, but also keep crime down and uh, find out where the bad guys are. We have the lowest crime rate we've ever had in the history of the city, and that's particularly important to black and Latino kids and their families and their neighborhoods because that's where the crime is. Stops are made based on descriptions of suspects and suspicious activity only. And the sad reality is, on the streets of our city, 90% of murder suspects and murder victims are black and Latino. I think we disproportionately stop whites too much and minorities too little. I'm Dan Keating, a data reporter in graphics. The Stop and Frisk program, which was also called Stop, Question, and Frisk in New York City, enables police to target people who haven't necessarily committed a crime, but that they want to just check out, especially in high-crime areas. So the good thing about that is that police are hoping to try to actually prevent crimes. The bad thing about that is that it empowers police to stop people who maybe have done nothing wrong. And a lot of people felt that they were really being very unfairly targeted, just walking down the street, and police would stop them, put them up against the wall, and frisk them. Mayor Giuliani expanded the program considerably in the 1990s to try to address New York's high crime rate. And in fact, crime did come down a lot due to a number of factors, including a reduction of crack, higher incomes, a stronger economy. There was a lot of things that contributed to crime coming down. And one thing that got some credit was stop and frisk. Then Michael Bloomberg came along in 2002, and he 
expanded it enormously from up to about 100,000 stops a year. And Bloomberg's police turned it up to over 680,000 stops in a year. So it was a six-fold increase. And the crime rate basically continued to do the exact same trend it had done under Giuliani. It was going down at about the same rate. So that huge increase in stops, which caused an enormous amount of angst, especially in the African-American and Hispanic communities where over 85% of the stops are, people felt really unfairly targeted and didn't feel like it was actually making much of a difference with regard to the, the crime rate. Stop and frisk was controversial, but the defense for it was that it drove crime rates down. And there is just no question that stop, question, frisk has saved countless lives. And we know that most of those lives saved, based on the statistics, have been black and Hispanic young men. What we found was that In fact, some of the rates of major felonies actually went up while the stop and frisks were at their maximum. That included larcenies and assaults and rapes. And then after a federal judge in 2013 ruled that stopping a lot of people for whom there was no basis to think they had been involved in crime was unconstitutional for the African-American and Hispanics that were being stopped. The number was cut in half in a year. Then even when they disappeared, almost all the stop and frisks went away. The crime rate continued to go down. And some crimes actually went down faster afterwards, burglaries and and robberies in particular. Bloomberg's defense, and it's most famously now represented by an audio of an Aspen Institute event where he spoke. And he said 95% of murders, murderers, and murder victims fit one M.O., you can just take the description, Xerox it, and pass it You can out just take a description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops. They are male minorities, 16 to 25. To take just the relatively small number of murder perpetrators and reflect that to all African-American and Hispanic men is just completely unfair. The vast, vast, vast majority of African and Hispanic men are not involved in murder. And so to just apply it to them uh, is what the judge said was unconstitutional. In November, right before he announced his campaign for president, he apologized, said he had come to realize that a lot of harm was done and that he's sorry that it happened. I apologized when enough people said to me, you were wrong, and I thought about it, and I wish I'd done it earlier. And essentially saying that he has learned over time and and he's become more enlightened. And he has repeated that consistently right up to last night. He was at a public event where he said that again. Uh, I can't rewrite history, look back, and if I had something, if I could do it elsewhere uh, again, uh, I would do it differently. It is certainly true that people can learn over time and can come to understand things they didn't previously understand. On the other hand, some people are saying that he seems to have had this enlightenment right when he was about to run for president and needed a lot of African-American and Hispanic votes. Dan Keating is a data reporter for The Post. You can find the Post's analysis of stop and frisk at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow on the podcast, your coronavirus questions answered. You should not be freaking out now. You should be thinking. You should be preparing. I'm Nicole Ellis. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 